Hello and welcome to the Volrath Feed. This is the place to find out more about the very large world of commercial food service. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef at the Volrath Company. And as always, I'm joined by, I feel very strongly, the number one producer in the business and my co-host, Justin Pearson. Hey, Justin. Oh, I uh, thank you so much. Hi. Uh, I, I don't, I don't yeah, know man. if that's necessarily true, but you know what? Yeah, I'll, be, I'll be your number one. Yeah, awesome. You, you do it really well, and uh, our all of our video, film, and uh, content needs at the Volrath Company. So I, I love doing it, and I, I love uh, all the people I work with. It's been uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. We do have a good team, don't we? We really do. Yeah, yeah we do. We're, we're really surrounded by, which, in my experience, is exceptionally rare uh, in in marketing departments to have such a well-balanced team and that's just a testament to the culture yeah. that's built at Volrath and, and why people stay there you know what I really like I feel like on a on a dime people would uh, be able to switch direction and we'd all be pulling in the same direction in a minute right there's nobody that's gonna say no and you can ask for a hand and everybody's there to help you so that's that's what yeah, I like yeah. yeah all right well a little off topic but we'll get back here our guest with us here today, Chef Therese Nelson. She's the founder of Black Culinary History. It's a website designed um, around black history, black food, and one of the goals of the site, it says, is to do our part in preserving and paying homage to the collective black culinary heritage. You know, Justin, we talked a little bit uh, before we started the show today just about our guest and about history and, you know, so much that we learn from our guests. And uh, today will be no exception. We don't, neither one of us really know a lot about black culinary history. So I think it'll be very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, as we, as we strive to do on the podcast, bring different topics for, for people to, um, to learn something from. So I think today will be a good show in that regard as well. Definitely. And like we were talking about before the show, food is history. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to preserve your own family history, but cultural history as well, and that, that gets passed down through generation to generation. For a lot of us, it's our first introduction into uh, societies and cultures different from our own is, is through food. To have the knowledge of where that came from is critical to you know, understanding a little bit more about people and things that are different from what we grew up with. And mm-hmm. Well, Justin, my background or my heritage is um, German, and um, my dad who passed away two years ago or so, uh, my mom and I were talking about a dish that he always made. He always made it at Christmas. And he was shown how to make this dish from a lady that he worked with. And she was German. And my mom and I were talking about it, and it's never been written down. Mm-hmm. And I'm fearful we've lost it. Oh, because no. um, I don't know why, but I he'd always make it, and it was always at Christmas. And now, uh, I don't know, we're having a hard time tracking down anyone else who might know what that is. So, hmm. uh, you know, even though Germans have, have been around and, and the culture, rather, and the cuisine is well documented, there are still pockets of it that aren't. And mm-hmm. that's, um, that's kind of sad, I guess, you know, that we might lose some of those things. But, you know, the other things, of course, the, all the sausages and the, the uh, what was some of the other things my dad would make? Fleischbrook. I mean, have you had Fleischbrook yet? That's mm-hmm. a good one. For those of our listeners who don't know, would you like to explain that? Fleischbrook. Oh, yeah. That's ground beef, onions, 
uh, just simply season salt and pepper and cabbage, and you cook it down and then put it into a bread dough and bake it. That's it. It's like a meat pie wrapped in bread, like a dinner roll. Uh, dinner roll bread dough works. Mm-hmm. Just thaw them out, roll them out, put the meat in the center, kind of bring them around and put them together like you're making a little dumpling or sorts and turn it over so you got the nice uh, smooth side up, bake it in the oven. I'm thinking about some of the things that, some of the recipes that my family passed down. Um, and I, I talked about it on a previous episode uh, about our sour cream and raisin pie. I'm like, oh yeah, I got that from grandma and, and you know, grandma passed to my mom, got it from my mom. And uh, and I'm thinking like, oh, this has got to go back to like, you know, the 1800s or something, you know, that somebody whipped up. And um, I talked to my grandmother and she said, uh, no, that came off of a box. <laughs> <laughs> Better Homes and Gardens it was, it was, magazine. Yeah, I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's like a, some recipe somewhere. And I'm just like, oh man, <laughs> it's just... I'm trying to think about things that were like genuinely created within my family, and uh, yeah, after so many generations, a lot of that thing you get, you have this cultural assimilation where those things get lost. And like you were saying, if they're not documented, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they eventually the oral transmission of these of these recipes goes by the wayside, or it gets modified to the point where it's unrecognizable to its origin. Right. That, there's a good example of that. My family restaurant, we make a soup. It's a green bean soup. And you. the trick to the soup is you have a brown butter and you make your roux out of the brown butter. It's got a very unique taste. Mm-hmm. Sour cream, green beans, meatballs, onion. Uh, simple soup, but very. you got to get the brown butter just right. So it, I th- I'm going to butcher the name. I'm sorry, but I think it's in German, it's green bean soup, which is grunbone, grunbona, grunbone soup, we call it. And customers at the restaurant, we've been serving it there for 40 years, it's evolved from grunbona soup to cream de bona, and then people take the flavor profile and they try to make it, and then they claim they've got the cream de bona soup that they've made, and now that's, you know, evolving, I'm sure, maybe in their families, they're, they're, it's it's moving uh, further and further away from maybe the original grew in the bone soup, or yeah. however they say it. So well, and that's that just illustrates one of the challenges of of preserving a culinary history. Is yes, you can have things written down, but it's all that technique and the special mm-hmm. things that need to be shown as well. Oh, this this soup's a great example there too, because if you get the butter too far, you burn it, and now it's mm-hmm. not brown butter; it's burnt butter, and that's mm-hmm. got a different different yeah. taste. So. Well, and you need you need to pass it to somebody competent to preserve the technique and style. And yes, so not having that recipe that my dad made at Christmas, I mean, I know how my mom and I are feeling about it. My sisters, mm-hmm. you know, we're all uh, it just is 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 making us really really sad that we may not ever get that. We may just not know. Yeah, well, it's it's now, really like losing a part of him. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. And now imagine like what Teresa is doing, trying to preserve that in a much bigger, right, mm, area with right. a bigger um, amount of recipes or cuisine or culture. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about that feeling that you're experiencing, that that sense of loss. We're talking about an entire population of of the planet that potentially wouldn't be able to trace 
the roots of their history uh, with the food. And that's, that's an enormous sense of loss that, that can be felt a, across the entire globe. And, and that's why these preservation efforts are, are so critical. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. That's, that's a good way to kind of bring it all down, right? It's gone forever for so many people. And I've just got me and my mother, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I know how that affects me. I can't even begin to think about the weight Teresa must have on her. All right, Justin, well, let's find out more about our guest today. Uh, to remind everyone, our guest, Therese Nelson, and uh, let's hear about her and her culinary journey and where she wants to go. To remind everyone, again, she is the founder of Black Culinary History. And as we are in Black History Month, very appropriate. So, Therese, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rich. It's a joy to be here. Thank you very much. All right. Well, Therese, can you just, um, we'll get into the the black culinary history and all that, but uh, I read somewhere you, we grew up in Newark and we always like to hear from chefs, you know, where did, at what age and, and how did you get interested in culinary? When did you know this was going to be something for you? Sure. Um, so yeah, I grew up born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. Um, people don't know a lot about Newark or if they do, um, in sort of this current moment, they think of Cory Booker, they think of, um, it's the largest city in this, in the state. Um, it's proximity to New York is a big deal. And in retrospect, it's so interesting to think about growing up 20 minutes from Manhattan, um, never really considering the world of food, um, as a kid because it felt very insular, right? Like this, it's a very urban city. Think Detroit, think Chicago, think um, DC, cities that have such um, amazing sort of insulated black life. I was surrounded by culture. I mean, I lived on a block with all my city councilmen, almost um, from my ward, the state, Assemblymen and congressmen lived a block over the the, um, the mayor lived down the street. There's a amazing writer, poet, activist, Amir Baraka. Um, he grew up around the corner. I mean, it was just a city that felt to me like I don't know. They just it felt to me like I was as much as people talked about our city being the Carthage capital of the world and um, the imagination on our city was this urban blighted place, it felt rich and cultural to me. Um, and also grew up in the era of sort of technology and internet becoming um, sort of viable options. So um, during high school, I thought I was going to be a computer engineer. I was going to go to Rutgers. It's a state school. I, every summer had been at like combinatorics and applied mathematics programs and just that was the plan. Um, but my junior year, I just decided, I mean, I was sort of being groomed really particularly to um, to start this life in tech. And I was being mentored by um, this organization that was minority tech folks um, mentoring high school students. And I'm watching these mentors who are showing me what my life is going to be. They're working at, you know, big corporations, you know, um, they were sort of giving you a really clear view as to what your adult life was going to be. And I mean, I don't know, something about the juxtaposition of growing up in a city where 
people put their imagination onto your possibilities um, and seeing so clearly what my future is going to be. I don't know. It just sort of, I, everybody around me was so passionate about this area and I just wasn't. It's something I was good at. I could see a really clear, um, defined path for, but I don't know that I could, I was excited about it as much as resigned to it. And so I really started to ask serious questions over that summer. What was I actually interested in? What was I most excited about, interested in? And I mean, I'd always been a baker, always been interested in food and television really wasn't. I mean, we didn't have like um, Food Network or like the sort of television um, food spaces. We sort of think of it now. PBS was really all like great chefs of the world was on like, you know, new cable networks. And there was just this sort of it was entertainment. It was aspirational, but it certainly didn't feel um, uh like a viable option, but I really started to, to, the seeds of it were planted that summer. And I asked my mom about it. I sort of told her what I was thinking. And my mom is, I grew up with a single parent, um, who made a lot of sacrifices to bring me up, didn't finish college herself. And the college process, again, like I had a very clear plan. My, you know, my school was helping me to, to make these really particular um, choices and she didn't have any reference point for how to be a chef. So she was scared about it, but <laughs> she did what good moms do and she sort of helped me research. We, I mean, the, the, that was, again, this is the era where like schools used to advertise on television. So like you would see like um, New York restaurant school was around the time. And again, that thing about being 20 minutes from Manhattan, never considering New York schools, but um, we really had no um, sort of understanding of the landscape. So went to CIA, went did the tours at Johnson Wells, did um, was it Peter Kemp, which I think turned into some other school. But back in the day, Peter Kemp was this really small school that was an option. New England Culinary and sort of saw the landscape. Johnson Wells was the only place I could justify to my mother that I was going to get a real tangible bachelor's degree. Um, <laughs> and we sort of spent the first couple of months of my senior year trying to figure out whether this was going to be a real option. And I don't know, I took it very seriously. It was the one place I thought I could... This thing I had no conception of or no understanding of, it felt the one place where I was going to be able to still get a solid foundation to then move on to do something else with it. Like, you know, my, I have a double, ma- double bachelor's in culinary and hospitality. And it felt like it's still going to be solid. Even if I don't end up wanting to be like a fine dining chef, I could work in hotels or do something else with it. But that there was still going to be, I was going to have an educational foundation to be able to apply to whatever else I wanted to do. So uh, it's a very long answer to your question, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Were you were you ever considering the hours and the weekends and all that the, the that side of our industry that people don't sometimes think of when they look at one side of it and did that ever scare you? It didn't. And the thing that I guess is so interesting about um, the path my career is taking is that was really a selling point. Um, there was this. that felt to me to be this. The more I started to dig into what this work was really about, especially um, given the context of the school, because, um, again, like my my imagination was seeing, you know, great chefs of the world or seeing the sort of affectation of what a chef was or like the like sort of a media driven idea like you know, to see a chef in this clip didn't give me a, a real sense of what that work really was. But talking to to, you know, 
these instructors and folks from these different schools really getting ideas to what the real work of it was. One of the, the things I, I love so much about this job is it's, it literally tests you every day that I was going to be able to to go into an industry that asks you to just show up, at least what I thought was, um, that there was sort of a very clear definition of what success could look like and you could define it for yourself. If you're working for someone else, I mean, even in the early parts of my career when I was working in hotels mainly, um, you, you suit up every day. You have to Look yourself in the mirror every day. You have to put those whites on and show up your facility. You have to show up your full facility and what you're capable of that day is all that matters, right? That, that's a, that's an attractive way of living your life. So many things in life are um, subjective and sort of the markers of tangible success are arbitrary. This was one place it felt like very clear. You is a clear win on the line, a clear win um in food is instant gratification. Well exactly. You make a dish, you give it to someone, they enjoy it, there you go, right? That's that's the nice part about our industry for sure. Right. People that you get into it and you really like it. You know, so you're going to school and you, you learn about uh different cuisine types and things like that. Is that where you kind of got this um, inspiration for black culinary to preserve the history of it? Where did you realize there there was that need? Sure. Uh, It would be an attractive narrative to suggest that those seeds were planted or like I had a very clear understanding of the the necessity of the work I'm doing now back then, but I really didn't. Um, There were overt and subliminal cues to me that my cultural identity was not valuable in the marketplace. Um, when I was, I mean, again, like a really early, back, Johnson Wells back in the day had this thing called a passport. It's this big blue bond that a freshman would get. And it was sort of, what is the the long-term, like, you know, most idealized job you think you want to do in this industry? Like, I want to be the executive chef of a, you know, resort hotel in the Caribbean. Just very specific ideas. And you would get this, there would be this page, you flip the pages, see the title, and it'd be a long list of like all of the skill sets, the things you would need to know to be prepared to do that job. And, you know, so lots of things that, that were on the list were things that you were going to get along your degree, right? Like you, I'm going to need to understand food costs and I'm going to need to understand hospitality law, whatever. All those things. But then there were some things that were more subjective and things that weren't going to be attainable during your degree. So like you would be able to gut check yourself along the way. Like, you know, sort of if I was two years out of school and there was something halfway down the list, I'd be able to sort of see how close am I to really being ready to get this, this how, how much a checklist is checked off. And it was an interesting gut check because um, I think that there were really clear, there were clear, there were seeds planted about what possibilities were and where mobility was and like how it, it seemed fair in a way that the passport explained it that if I was if I showed up if I did this checklist that the possibilities were limitless right but I would go to into these hotels and work alongside of women in pastry garmagee and um the work with line cooks who were disproportionately black and brown who had been their jobs for 30 years and i'm no disrespect to someone who chooses to feed their families to sing their kids to college to 
keep a job that is stable and provides your life support. But I couldn't, it was, back then I think the messaging that I felt that every time I read about um, chefs that were achieving high levels of success, when I was looking at the bosses, people who were managing me um, in positions of power, I never saw people of color. That I would work with sous chefs who wouldn't be allowed to go out um, front of the house to talk to guests because it was expectation that you you can't be the, the person of authority in this space. Um, I would, I mean, one of the most, I went to Johnson Wells in Providence and I moved, I went, ended up transferring to the Charleston campus because it was less expensive and all these factors, but moving to Charleston was such an interesting dichotomy. And again, even then, I don't know that the that it was the necessity of the space I created was evident then, but it was certainly evident that um, possibilities were more limited than I originally thought. I mean, I was, I'm writing this thing now about this man in Esau Graham. I don't know if you know a lot about Charleston, but Charleston, South Carolina, um, people's imagination is on to Charleston as a food city. Um, it's a complicated food city. But there was a chef named Joe Osteen. I remember doing my research when I was transferring to that campus and thinking about Joe Osteen as like the godfather of Charleston cuisine. He's had just written a book when I transferred. He was sort of, I mean, Charlie Trotter, Joe Osteen. He was the same sort of career level um, as some of these other amazing chefs that were sort of the standard bearers in our work. And in this book, he references this man in Esau. He's like a green, a child, collard green recipe. I think one or two other references he makes of Esau. And he had worked at Charleston Grill, which is at the Charleston Place Hotel. Back then was a Orient Express, Orient Express Hotel. Um, he had just moved from that hotel when I got there. And it was in my mind, like, you know, he's telling me that he's the chef from this amazing hotel, this amazing restaurant. I ended up working there. And sort of the lore of him was still in the ether, right? He they just put this new chef in, but he his spirit was still there. The work that he had done, the foundation he had set, was still there. And I'm looking around this hotel, working with these people. The man who you the first your first point of contact as a new cook is Esau. You are he's the AM he's AM prep guy. He's a person who every duck on feet every prep lobster every sauce every all every taste of that restaurant goes through his hands he's teaching every and so to watch this man who's been in this job at that point I mean, this is 20 years ago but at that point had been there for 20 years had been the right hand of this man who was the front-facing star of charleston food Ways. to watch to have this man be in community with a school like johnson wells where you watching interns, externs come through your kitchen. You're training the people who are going to be your boss. You train, again, at the time, it didn't hit me. It didn't sit with me. It sat with me that he was a person who actually had authority, who actually was teaching me the skills that I was going to take with me. I can still taste that comfy in my, I, I smell it. I can, <laughs> but that in retrospect, um, his story is not uncommon. And so when I left school and started taking my first jobs and was sort of starting to think about a catering company and sort of moving into my own first of all, catering is all don't always it was always the goal but 
moving into a professional space that was more autonomous, I realized I really didn't have a lot of fortification in terms of my spirit. I had tools, I had professional backup, I had foundation in that way. But when you are solely responsible for paying people, when you are, um, you know, it was 08, around 08 when we had the downturn and it was like so much of what I thought professionally was going to be the next 10 years of my life gets a little rocky. I needed something substantial to sort of fortify the choice to show up every day in this work. Because at that point, it was I was unclear as to what those things were. We, t- we were talking before, and I think I heard you mention that you think Charleston is one of those cities that is a very prominent city in black food. Um, one million percent. It, it sort of guts me every time I think about it because I didn't, I didn't have... I didn't know enough back then to know the wealth of reference that I have right in that city. I mean, you sort of talk about, I think people think a lot about New Orleans in terms of its food culture and, you know, sort of where um, sort of black food culture and black chefs sort of thrive. You think about Creole cuisine, you think about the sort of agency that disproportionately black chefs have in that city, even though it's sort of a myth and it's sort of a misnomer. But um, it's a city that you tie very clearly to um, black food ways. And it's it's sort of the the sort of black hand in that, that cultural pie. But Charleston disproportionately is one of the most important cities in the country with reference to food. It's a port city. Um, During slavery, it was, I mean, it was the main port of call. You're talking about, so colonial history is detective work, essentially. Um, There are no clear narratives that exist. You have to sort of use lots of factors to sort of gauge what information is valuable or what it's telling you. Um, Paul Freeman wrote a book about the 10 restaurants that changed the world a couple years ago. And it's interesting that he sort of chose, the cities he chose and the restaurants he talked about, but Charleston, the cities that we think of or that we um, consider valuable um, if in sort of food history really are about the resources available and the amount of money available to put into I get restaurant is a very tricky word when you're talking about his historical context, but Charleston was city to have Charleston, Philadelphia, um, Richmond, Virginia. These are places where you had a port, you had re- food switch coming in and out, you had money and resources, some sort of hotel, so, or some sort of you, hotels kind of were where before restaurants, hotels were what kind of where cuisine was happening. Charleston disproportionately was one of these places where you had these Gullah people who were enslaved on these sea islands and it was a sort of dichotomy between country and city life. And the Gullah cuisine really does rival Creole cuisine um, as, I mean, the, the DNA of both are so similar, so clear. Jambalaya is, is Charleston red rice. Like, you know, a purlu is, I mean, it's, there, there's such clear, there are such clear um, African roots in both cities. And you see that the, the sort of deft hand um, of, of, of black chefs in those cities. But I, what I was talking about more in terms of Charleston's importance is as our country was starting, starting to realize or contend with the South as a valuable 
um, American institution. That, su- that Southern cuisine was really one of the few places that we had a clear cut, fully formed and defined um, like gastronomic imprint. Um, Seems like Charleston become important because again, it's, it's the, the, the hub of so much life. And it's so, I mean, it just, at the time, I think um, it was an old, an older city. It was a sort of transient city. It was a like a, t- there was these tourist seasons. And I was in school at the time when Sean Brock was just kind of coming up. So it was a city that was primed to be um, this really clear uh, cultural hub for this emergent um, imagination on the South. But I didn't really see all of that at the time. I just sort of was in my insulated bubble and didn't realize that, like, I had I me. Mean, Charlie Jenkins is one of our most brilliant minds. Renee Grosner um, is one of my heroes. Um, there's just some, that they, these women were in Charleston, in South Carolina at the time that I was there, and I didn't know enough to seek them out. So when you're in Charleston, is, is, and you look around at the food and the culture and the food that's there, is that where you kind of had this um, revelation that a lot of it wasn't as well documented? Sure. So the work I do now is really sort of about visibility, right? Your point about um, documentation is, is a really interesting and tricky one because the problem is not that this culture didn't doesn't exist. That the the DNA of or the story of um, black authorship and agency in American gastronomy isn't uh, isn't true. It's just that it isn't, isn't documented. Um, the, I love books so much because they represent the eras that they were written in. That we can look at cookbooks and look at the trajectory of cookbooks and see American American food ways evolve. But it's curious um, how we tell those stories. It's curious to me um, the stories that we choose to elevate, to lift up, and to put into um, front face and mainstream spaces. Because that defines the times and tells a story that in large part is disingenuous and half-hearted. It's, if you don't, if you aren't honest about the full truth, then you leave gaps in conventional wisdom in a way that allows people to tell us a story about what's missing as though it's not intentional. Early cookbooks, do we think about like the early American cookbooks, um, the sort of Abby Fishers of the world, the sort of Melinda Russells, these were enslaved cooks. These were people who, we look at the cookbooks um, of the the Fannie Farmer eras, right? that these early American, usually white women who were writing these cookbooks weren't writing them in silos. They had an enslaved cook. They had a woman who would be the person whose hands were actually crafting these recipes and they were writing them down and giving these people no authorship. So their names don't exist, not because they weren't, they didn't, they weren't there because they weren't the architects of this, these food ways and the people who were crafting these, this language It's because they didn't get off. They didn't get credit. Credit is only valuable as far as what it gives you in terms of resources. So much, so many times I think, um, at least when I was starting out, there was this sense of defensiveness because I was watching much older chefs being marginalized and internalizing that marginalization as though it has something to do with their value, their um, ability to be um, marketable in this mainstream space. 
And that does something to your psyche. It tells you something subliminally. It changes the posture with which you do your work. And it changes that posture to a defensive one that sort of makes you bitter and angry and upset. And your then, then the, the, the response to that is to try and seek validation in spaces that don't quite deserve it. Like you are contorting yourself, trying to be better than equal to whatever, um, for what reason? I remember when I was just starting this site, asking a lot of very well-meaning, um, very seasoned black chefs about how I found myself in this work. And their answers were, you're not a black chef, you're a chef first, that your identity has nothing to do with what your work, what you do in this work. And I appreciated that um, to a point. But I wonder now, especially as time is passing, especially as who we are as professional chefs, who we are when we put ourselves on a plate in our own voices. I wonder why it's okay that so many of my elders weren't comfortable putting themselves on the plate wholeheartedly. That they they the the ability to bring who you are, your culture to the table is not a vice. It's not it's not a defensive posture. It's a it's a right. It's a it's a it is a distinguishing factor that makes the thing you have to offer interesting and valuable and dope. And I, it's so interesting to me to watch a decade later this to be the, the exact case we live in. Everybody gets to show up as a fully formed person. But I wonder why that wasn't the case when I was in Coney School. I wonder why, and it's not so much that I wonder, but I I, I guess I want I would hope that we considered that more. And so my work is not about anything other than making sure that an 18-year-old who's choosing this work, who comes from a place like I came from, doesn't start from a place where she, she he feels like they have to diminish who they are or leave out who they fully are um, in their work. And it starts with the truth. And you can't know the truth if it's not documented. And so we tell these stories. It is nothing more than a baseline. We, we talk about foodways and sure. we talk about black foodways. How do you describe what is a black foodway? That's a fair question. Um, and it's one that I, I find that I'm less stressed about answering um, at this age, at this point in my work than I was when I first started. I was consumed with having to have the language um, to describe what our food ways were because it was so clear um, there was a, a, such a particularity in the ways that black food and black life was expressed in the, in the food world when I was coming up. There was this very particular um, soul food narrative that was fried chicken, it was greasy, it was the castaway food, this narrative around the enslaved life, um, being the, the DNA of our food ways didn't tell that that part of it wasn't even the full and honest story of why those traditions are part of um, this foundation. And I remember it was 2005, um, 2015. Um, there's a woman named Tony Tipton Martin. She's she wrote the book called The Jemima Code. She had a follow-up cookbook called Jubilee. Um, she won James Beard Award for both of them. She's one of our country's most brilliant writers and voices around um, black heritage and American food, right? Um, she had this thing called Soul Summit in 2015. It was 150th anniversary of emancipation. It was, um, it just felt so, like it was so, such a round number and such a, like a kind of 
momentous marker, right? So she called up every black chef, writer, historian you could think of, and they all converged in Austin, Texas. And it was like, I don't know what it this I don't know what you could compare it to, but it was family reunion, it was like, you know, culinary conference, it was it was all these things and it was so black and so fly and so like soul stern. But in this room, um, on this college campus in the middle of June, with the best minds, the smartest thinkers, the most prolific black chefs in the country, we were still having conversations around how to craft this language. Because again, if you spend so much time diminishing yourself, denying your own agency in a space, you haven't even taken the time to define it for yourself. You've been so consumed with trying to be equal to that you left behind the legacy that you have bequeathed to you. Um, and so there's a, a writer, journalist, amazing thinker, Lola's Eli. Um, he's the person who wrote Trim, the Treme cookbook, the television show Treme. Um, he was a culinary consultant for it. He wrote the cookbook. Um, he is, he's writing a book around, He's I think he's co-writing Ronnie Scott's cookbook. He wrote a, a book about black barbecue back in the day as well. Um, his speech was probably, and there's a clip of it on my website on the SoundCloud. I think I have a clip of him doing this part. But he, he says in this room full of all these black folks who've been thinking about and writing about and cooking about black food, but haven't quite defined it yet. He gave us this framework that essentially said black food ways are a collection of traditions, ingredients, techniques built and born out of black hands in this country that he was giving us the markers. He was giving us the tools to sort of decide what goes into that pot. You know, is sort of, we can't talk about our food ways without talking about the transatlantic slave trade. We can't talk about that, that and not just the slave trade, but the past of slave trade, right? Talking about the continent to the Caribbean, to the Eastern coast of the U.S., how those traditions, how those, how that that history played out, played itself out, um, and assimilating to adjusting to making room for this American identity. It certainly has roots in the enslaved era. It has roots in those plantation kitchens, but it also has roots in how we infused and collaborated with and and created um, with other cooks, other cultures as we got free. And so I think of Black food ways as the food of Black people. It encompasses our food traditions in our homes, but it also can't be divorced from um, the work we did professionally because it was that, that work was always tied to um, our cultural lives, that you can't talk about the White House and the, the, the food of, of the White House without talking about Black church. You can't talk about the, the, the foundations of restaurant culture in this country without talking about Black hands. Um, so these food ways are about identity. They are about traditions and techniques that we are still in search of and flux and sort of defining as we go, right? Um, when I was starting out, it was I liken it to like building a language. We I needed to find the letters first. Um, we don't we had there were no clear letters yet. Um, the last ten years we starting to create words, create language that that we specified the sort of African Atlantic, um, the, the sort of African Atlantic 
geographical era as the sort of foundational hotbed for where these the, these traditions really stem from that we can draw these particular correlations from this sort of transatlantic African Atlantic corridor um that's 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 us building words that's us framing words to give us the foundation to start building language around um the only thing the only reason I hesitate is because also in terms of the the literature we have we are really, I mean, Town Hog was 2011. That it wasn't, until, again, Jessica Harrison's been writing cookbooks since 1986, but it wasn't until 2011 that even she had the language to start to craft this, this sort of linear story. Um, and it's, it's taken time. It's taken time to see books like like um, the Jemima Cole. That's Tony Tinton Martin giving us a bibliography of Black cookbooks from... 250 years of food traditions that lay out a trajectory that tell you a story in the written publications. That's another layer. That's Michael Twitty giving us the cooking gene, adding a personal narrative to it. Um, and there's more to come, right? There are cookbooks that lay on top of that. Um, there are chefs that are using their restaurants as the sort of battlegrounds for this, this, um, this, this, this cuisine. So we have a a workshop we have sort of a culinary workshop to work out what those food ways look like in in food right that's Eduardo Jordan at June Baby that's Mashama Bailey at the Gray that's JJ Johnson um and Alexander Smalls with um the Cecil it's closed it's, it's a different restaurant now but the the sort of jewel box of that restaurant was memorialized in their book between Harlem and Heaven and so we have chef Eric Williams in Chicago. Like there are so many chefs now that are centering black culture, black food ways, using again this very wide, very um, relatively new language to start to show what that looks like as cuisine. But it doesn't just. I think cuisine is what a rush. One of the things I'm, I guess I'm most empowered by is that. The restaurants in a lot of ways are fleeting. They are sort of beholden to your ability to get to them. So if you don't live in Seattle, you don't get to really taste what Eduardo was doing. But you could have his cookbook, right? You could have his... Um, and so writing becomes so valuable to me. I've sort of found it as this really important space because you aren't going to be able to get to everyone's restaurant. You aren't going to be able to taste... Um, everyone's work but you can certainly read um tony tipton martin going off you can read you know jessica harris you can read verna may you can, once you read verna may grows and you can't unknow her um, so i just think that there's such power in crafting language um especially in this moment where we are in such transformation so there are many battlegrounds <laughs> When you say there's such power in language, what would you say to a person now working in the industry? Uh, what would be your two-minute pep talk or speech or way to help them if to be heard or to be recognized uh, if they're feeling that they're not? What would your advice be to someone in those shoes right now? Um, I guess I would say to be very clear about what it is you what what that means for you. Um, <clears throat> visibility is only to my mind as valuable as is the resources that it gives you. So if you, I saw, so I talked to a lot of young cooks who are in kitchens that 
they don't feel they have any possibility for upward mobility, something I can relate to completely from the early days. But I also, when I was in culinary school and in the early parts of my career, when I was, I was seeing very clearly um, that kind of landscape, um, made very clear definitions or just sort of um, decisions about where I wanted to work. I always wanted to be a caterer because it was the one place where I could be autonomous quickly. Um, you know, the possibilities for your um, for autonomy are relatively limited when you're working for someone else, and I don't care who you are. The chefs and cooks who work for Thomas Keller or work at Eleven Madison Park, yeah, these are the best restaurants in the country, but you, it's not, still not your vision on the plate. You are working for someone else, and there's always going to be limitations to where you're going to be able to move and rise to because it's not your it's not yours. And so I always start with what is it exactly that you mean by limitations? Because structures, systems certainly need to be dismantled, but you have to understand the systems that you exist in to understand what what the actual issues are. Possibilities are actually limitless, but you have to recalibrate what your expectations are. To my mind, if your main motivation, again, when I came to this work, I thought, damn, it's dope that I could be in a job that I could train for, be the best that I could personally be, and translate that into an income, translate that into a career. Now, I, right now I'm a private chef. I have two clients I've been working with for 15 years combined. Um, the last eight years has been so, actually the last 12 years has been the most joyous part of my professional life that I use the space of this very intimate, very particular, very lucrative area of my work to be able to then feed into this other side of my, my life and career. To some chefs, private chef work, catering, is not a valuable place to live, to be. You have to calibrate and decide what is valuable to you. If you're telling me that I'm frustrated that I'm working in this amazing fine dining restaurant and I can't, I can't get ahead, that, that to me has, you have to ask yourself some very serious questions. How important is it to you to be in this space? How much are you willing to swallow? What do you, and it, you have to f- think sometimes you feel this, to feel disempowered suggests that you can't change the circumstances that you're in. Isms are ridiculous. Racism, sex, they are all absurd. They are frustrating as hell. But to wake, especially when I talk to young black people, to wake up in this country every day, who is this? Who is, I mean, I feel like it was Baldwin who said it, but like one of the most patriarch things you could do is wake up in this country, a law abiding, hopeful citizen, because contrary to that faith in this country, you are told in over and subliminal ways that you have to fight for every bit of agency you have in this country. And you still do it because the promise of parity and fairness um, is all we can really have. Right. And so Frustration around marginalization is true. It is heartbreaking. It is traumatic to some people. But I think sometimes that trauma comes from not finding ways to feel empowered by your actual choice. But it certainly does require you to recalibrate your expectations. 
Um, I'm not saying that everybody should just leave a restaurant that they don't feel empowered. And I'm saying that you have to sort of understand the landscape. That means that perhaps you need to start thinking about venture capital. You need to be much more serious and rigorous about what it is you want your space to be. Means that you, I, I don't know, it means a lot of things. Um, some of the responses that I've seen from folks who have felt this kind of frustration have been the result, the resulting like they have have kind of manifested themselves in some of the most beautiful and transformative um, new spaces in food. As a chef, I, I mean, a lot of chefs, the whole like pop up space. Ten years ago, you got laughed at um, for saying that you were gonna start a pop up, and every chef I know sees the power and the beauty. Black chefs, chefs of color, have always used alternative spaces to subvert traditional spaces because I, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not. There's only so much I'm gonna let you tell me I can't do. Um, the other legacy of being black and food in this country is that you remain dexterous. You remain resourceful. Um, that's a superpower to my mind. Um, it may not look like it to other folks. And that again, goes back to what your priorities are. If you are, if the only thing you see is valuable is being, you know, um, Thomas Keller, then yeah, you're going to be disappointed. Um, but if you can find a new set of, expectations and not for nothing but i think one of the most fascinating things i've seen um in the midst of COVID, in the midst of folks trying to sort of recalibrate themselves and rethink business models is that these systems didn't even serve white people the systems that we we beholden to contorting ourselves for um compromising equity parity um self-care mental health all of these frameworks for don't don't even serve white people. So I find it strange and challenging to encourage, especially young people, to be beholden to systems that ultimately won't serve them. You should certainly learn the game, learn the, learn the landscape, respect tradition, respect the ways in which our industry operates, but really understand them. Because the only thing, the only way you can subvert anything is by first understanding it, and a lot of times we aren't interested in doing that work. That's much more useful. That's much more valuable. Um, and it, in the process of that, I think um, it immediately changes the posture of feeling disempowered. It immediately um, requires you to ask yourself very serious and clear questions about what you want. And a lot of times you find that the things that you were the things you felt were wantable really are wanting what they're lacking. That's true. Yeah. You know, it's like learning the rules of the game. Yeah. It's so empowering. And, and once, once you have that, it allows you to know what rules you can bend, which ones you can break. And that's the difference, but it's, it's that work that you have to put into it. That is just so initially daunting when yep. you're starting in whatever game you're playing. So mm -hmm. yeah, without a doubt, that's spot on. Right. You know, we've done a lot of talking about um, uh, in the kitchen and, and people wanting to move up. And, and there's nothing wrong with people that want to go to work every day and work on the line and they're happy doing nope. it. They, you know, that that is a perfectly honorable thing. You just you're going to work. You got a good job. You're putting your time in. You're going home and taking care of things at home. That yep. That is nothing wrong with that either. So um, all honorable stuff. Yeah. Yep. You've talked a lot about uh, about people and and chefs and 
uh, things you've read and um, mm. experiences you've had, things that you've discovered. What what has impacted you the most? What are, what is what was the one aha kind of thing that you remember clearly the day you discovered it or it impacted you and and still to this day you feel drives you the most or impacts you the most. Mm. I mean, honestly, it was really so. This is photo. I just actually just wrote about this for our recipes. Um, who sort of got asked to write um, 500 words on the the person um, who most influences your work. And for me, it's Freddie Mae Grosner. Um, there's this photo of, there was, um, there's a writer named Toni Morrison. Um, she's one of my favorite writers. Is one of the most prolific writers we've had. And so she's a uniquely American writer. She fashioned herself, she, she understood herself to be um, a quintessential American writer. And the posture she wrote in, um, it's, it is an amazing interview she did. She did many interviews with Charlie Rose, but there's one where she talks about um, the lens of, the people's lens on your work, um, the, the white gaze on her work, that she would get asked why she wrote books like Sula and Beloved. Um, and she would get asked by critics if she would ever write about white people. And she sort of, this is rabbit hole she goes down, but this is Charlie Rose interview that she, she does. And it is, I, I watch this thing like every week. It's like my, it's, but it, there's a, I remember um, going down this Toni Morrison rabbit hole and finding this picture of this um, sort of writing collective she's part of in the 70s called The Sisterhood. And it was her and Alice Walker and all these, all these other women, and they were, they sort of were frustrated with publishing and formed this sisterhood to sort of help each other navigate book deals and sort of navigate the publishing world because they were being shut out in a lot of ways. But they all had such distinct voices that they wanted to sort of be in community with one another and help. And it's this image of the eight of them, this picture of Bessie Smith on the back wall. And they all just, they all have like, some of them have coats on, say, look, they maybe like, we're about to leave the meeting. And then like, they just, somebody just took a snapshot. And then, so everybody looks at this image for Toni Morrison, because Toni Morrison is Toni Morrison, right? And the young Alice Walker sitting in the front. And so you look at those two because they're the most famous of the, of the authors in that room. But in the corner on the opposite side of Toni Morrison is Verda Mae Grosner. And I've seen this image a lot, um, but didn't notice, I've noticed for the May, and didn't know who she was, and sort of deep dived into all of the women, but came to Verna May and realized that she was a cookbook writer. And I was like, well, dang, like, you know, these brilliant writers who I was thinking about culturally, they, they had a chef in their crew. They had like a, a food person in their midst. Um, and it was for balance, but it was also because Freddie Mae was a fearsome writer. She was a brilliant artist. And so I started to deep dive into her work, but in those early days, I read Vibration Cooking, not really understanding it. Um, and I remember when I started the site, um, I revisited Vibration because there was so much in that language that she used that was so fearsome and poetic and artistic, but I wasn't ready for it yet. I did. I wasn't quite... I didn't quite understand enough to see what she was really saying to me. So I just, I don't know, something about rereading, um, rereading Vibration and like, I feel like I I came to it again in like 2012 and it just changed my life. It changed how I write, it changed, it changed, the, I mean, it, it sparked my writing actually. It sort of told me that there, that there was something clear and distinctive about my point of view and that she was so 
bombastic about it and like the way she even the way she wrote the book she wrote in, th- in like three weeks and it was never really for anybody else and it was just this thing that she had to get out and got it published and it just it said to me that maybe a writing life was possible but there was also a necessity for food folks especially black food folks to tell their stories um in clear language that was sort of beholden to that tony morrison framework of not trying to translate it or contort it for white the white gaze but really be clear and specific um because it was going to be necessary this is just kind of a lighter lighter <laughs> question here, sure. but as a chef what is uh your one of the best three things that you've ever made in your life something that just stuck with you and recall that that moment with clarity mm. and it just takes you right back to it that's so a very good life-changing meal fun question um i don't know if it was one meal she said if you mean three things that i make that i just that are important to that i would say are important to the way i cook and how i think about food i say um duck confit um a la Esau Graham is number one. Like I remember, I can smell that confit right now. I make it the exact way he taught me to make it. Um, he, there's just a, there's a grace to a confit. There's a, bra- a grace to trusting the ingredients, your butchering, the ingredients that you put into the, to a, um, to a cure, the, ingredients you put into that fat and just letting it, letting God just be great. Like just let, let chemistry work. And what comes out is a taste that is so singular. Like it is one of my favorite is like whenever I'm like, I have time off and just like a couple leg quarters and like, ah, that is my life. Um, so that comfy is important to me. It sort of does. I'm trying to figure out a way to write about him in a way that is, that really does capture how, important he was it's turned this thing of this kind of conversation around charleston but that confit is i smell the juniperies right now um i would say my grandmother's white lima beans is like nobody else's it's not no no other thing any i don't care your cassoulet has nothing on my grandma's white lima beans and the first time i really nailed it on my own was a particularly beautiful moment um white lima beans white bean beans in general have such a pride of place in black culture um green lima beans like phil peas are like young beans um they are tender and they like edamame like um when they mature and they get large and they're just those luscious flat creamy white beans um it's such a humble dish, but it is so gorgeous. Um, she would make it with, she grew up in Latter, South Carolina. Um, so it's like, you drive down at 95, I hit the North and South Carolina border. Um, there's a place called South of the Border. It's one of the most racist places on earth. But <laughs> right next to it is a place called Latter. Um, and that's the town my grandparents grew up in. And the Great Migration gives us really clear lines of how people move through the country. And so this corridor is North and South Carolina. They all went and ended up in the Tri-State area in New York, New Jersey. Staten Island, New Jersey, um, sort of Manhattan, it's sort of, is a really small geographic circle that most of those folks went to. And you did that because you, your people went there, you had family. And so it's a really particular thing. But in our neighborhood, um, the butcher 
who my grandfather bought say sausage from and she bought her ham hocks from was butchering and smoking in the way that his family did back in Latta. So they would taste home. Like they had the same ham hocks that her mother had, that her grandmother had. Um, and this guy set up shop in Newark. And so that the, those are ham hocks that she would use. And you make this, she make this smoky, umami, salty broth with these ham hocks. And she would simmer it for, that would be an all day thing. She would just let it go. And that would be the sort of college, the collagen and the hocks would start to break down. It was just a sexy, rich broth. She would never soak the beans. And she would use these flat white beans and put them into this broth and just let them simmer. And the way these skins would get so silky and thin and delicate from being these thick, hard beans was magical. And she would always serve it with sweet cornbread, sometimes rice, but I just remember, I mean, the meat would kind of break apart and it became this, like, just silky stew. It's the most delicious thing. I can smell the smoke right now. I, the texture of those beans is just beautiful. It's one of my favorite things to eat. And I, I haven't actually made them a lot over the years, but it's one of those nostalgic things. I'm actually going to get her um, on audio to record, like, walking wow. me through the recipe um, just so I have it because it's one of those things that I, I take for granted that she should always be here but I want to get her like talking through that recipe for me um, and the third thing I would say is caramel cake you can't talk about black food traditions without talking about pastry um, the cake ladies the sort of the church traditions of these amazing black bakers who crafted these gorgeous cakes and pies um, is so much a part of our story and a poured caramel cake like a sort of it's a kind of a like this milk based caramel that you cook and stir and you you pour it it's a poured icing that is that taste is one of the most this cake is uh, we did a dinner a couple years ago um not, not actually last year um at the james bear house cooking southern like she sort of there were five women and we all cooked our like sort of it's like a dinner in honor of our grandmothers and so it was five courses where we sort of reimagined the dishes that we grew up with and the woman who did the pastry did this caramel cake that had miso um stirred into it and it was just i mean the level of like balance and umami that came from this case sweet caramel so it's a very sweet cake right but that little bit that miso just add this salt to it like you think salted caramel but it's uh, yeah anyway the, the caramel cake is a transcendent thing but this this miso version of it is i still remember this taste and it really it takes me back to that dinner it takes me back to being in that space and cooking in, in this profoundly white house, um, this very black dinner is one of my fondest culinary <laughs> memories. Wow, Therese, I think um, I could listen to you like hours. <laughs> I, I I love you. Make me think. You know, you do. You bring up. Uh, you're a good storyteller. You uh, you have passion. <laughs> Uh, and you make you bring up a lot of things that make me just. I'm sitting here a lot of just just nodding in agreement. And and thank you again uh, so much for taking the time with us today. We really really appreciate you joining us. And and really again, I think our listeners would agree, making us making us think about just looking at it a little differently. So thank you. Think and then act. Yes. yes. That part. <laughs> No, I appreciate the yeah. the invitation. This has been dope. You know, throughout your career, your life, at some point, 
there's been someone, I think we may have touched on it earlier, but I'm, I'm hoping you'll have one other one for us maybe here that uh, there's been a quote or a, a phrase or something that's inspired you. Do you have something like that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yes. So I, I did mention it before, but I would encourage you, if you have not read Toni Morrison before and not familiar with her work, you should go and immediately Google her, go to YouTube, find her videos. Um, but she wrote a book called Sula. Um, and it was sort of about this this woman's life and sort of, I believe it was like the 40s, but she wrote, she, Sula is about a lot of things. And as important and interesting as the book is, the forward to that book is one of my favorite pieces of writing. Um, and she addresses sort of the context that she's writing in, because at that point she was winning all these book awards and was sort of her presence in the American zeitgeist was sort of, she was becoming much more known um, and revered in that way. She was getting asked all these questions about the posture she writes in. And in that book, she says, um, basically, don't write with someone else's um, gaze over your shoulder. Um, and I, that thing hit me, it sits with me every day. Um, because it asks you to be so clear about you, your point of view, what you think is important, what you value in the work you do, whatever that looks like for her was writing. Um, but certainly in an industry that requires financial, spiritual, emotional, physical investment, we should be asking ourselves really serious questions about what we actually want. Um, what we, what our core ambition and values are. And it can't be contorted or perverted or sort of shifted by anybody else's gaze over your shoulder about what is valuable. Because it's never, you're never going to be able to satisfy anybody else's vision for what your work should be. Um, and she was talking about a lot of things in that book and that forward. But she was essentially saying, if you're looking for me to make you happy... Unfortunately, you're going to be disappointed um, that <laughs> I am autonomous and brilliant and you are reading my words because there's something valuable here to hear. So you can go on this ride with me or you cannot, but it's not going to change the posture with the work I do. So I don't know. Yeah, that's that's honest. true. Teresa, again, thank you. Nice. Uh, really a great show. Uh, wonderful meeting you and, and chatting with you today and Best of luck to you on everything going forward. And if you, anything um, you'd like to leave for our listeners, a way they can get in touch with you, social, or is there anything else you'd like to, to leave with them? Sure. Um, so my website is blackcolonialhistory.com. Um, we, like I said, 12 years old, and we're getting a little bit of a faceless. So, be, so it's up now and sort of will be relaunching in the next couple of weeks. But you can sign up for our newsletter there. And um, we have a very vibrant Facebook group. We started with 40 people um, 12 years ago, and we're around 5,000 now. Um, we are very close-knit and intentional collective folks share dope information every day and are just in community. I feel like a lot of those groups get to be very um surface but i mean i know most people in that group and it's been slow and steady community building and on socials on black culinary so you can sort of follow on instagram and all the other socials at black culinary oh fantastic and again wish, wishing you the best of luck and thanks again for joining us today on the feed thank you for having me thanks so much take care okay justin well we say it all the time but uh, another great show honestly she was uh, just a ton of information and things to make you think about oh i have so much homework to do now it's, yeah. <laughs> i was i was looking i was looking for 
some additional content to come out of this. And man, my cup runneth over. I've got so many names here that I need to go and research and read up on and uh, just and just to see how excited and passionate she was about all these different chefs and authors. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that I'm going to be, re- be reading whatever Therese comes out with because it's going to be fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to seeing her generate uh, some written works there. Yeah, she gave us just a lot of good stuff. Um, you know, where did it start and where do we think it was? And she's 100% spot on in, in where people look at it now. And it just brings to mind just doing some homework once in a while. And, and history is learning it through the lens of the people that are telling it to you, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. you got to challenge that and yeah. uh, think critically about it and wonder really where. And it was something that my dad would always talk about too. He, he, when he was talking about food history, and he would say, you know, a lot of the higher, the, the term high off the hog, right, was the upper part, the back, and the, the loins were the expensive. And it was the lower cuts that oftentimes went to people that couldn't afford the, the higher price cuts. So it would make sense then that if we're talking about uh, people who were enslaved and that's what they got and turned into some really great stuff, it, it kind of makes some sense. So, you know, if you think about it critically, you can get to where she was saying. Yeah. I mean, you think about black culinary history. She is black culinary history. I mean, the, the, she's a wealth of knowledge there. And then to to see what she's doing by collecting all these other scholars and experts and then really just becoming a repository for the preservation, it's just incredible the the amount of work that she's she's done there and then what she plans on going forward with them but i really liked her point of um knowing knowing how to play the game you know and 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 when it comes to advancement and and that's just applicable to anything and anyone at any stage in your life if you know the rules of whatever game you're playing that's the first step in empowering you to uh, be successful and know where you want to be. Know what you yes. want out of it. Because as I said, I think there's a lot of pressure for people wanting to always be the executive chef. But mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, going to work every day and working on the line and, and doing your job and doing it well, you can gain a lot of satisfaction and have a, a very honorable, um, satisfying career in life in that role. So it's not a, always about having to advance. If you have the drive and that's where you want to be, then... You have to evaluate, you know, is the is the um, what it's going to take? Is it worth the effort? But yeah. if if you're happy doing what you're doing, just just keep doing what you're doing and be happy. There's there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, yeah, and adjust your expectations yeah. if, uh, accordingly. All right, well, another great show. Um, time to, I think we should wrap this one up. So, any last comments, Justin? You bet. I would like to once again remind everyone to please hit that subscribe button and never miss another moment with a chef or food service industry professional again. We would also greatly appreciate it if you wouldn't mind sending us some suggestions for show topics. There you go. Also, anything at all, please let us know by reaching out to us at valrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And as my closing quote, everyone just remember, whatever it is, do it like there's a customer watching you and you'll never go wrong. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us today. Appreciate it. Until next time, take care.